And please turn to Psalm 8, which the choir chanted for us earlier in the service. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The first thing we need to see, the, the first thing we should notice, that the very first thing we need to say about this psalm is that it begins and ends and is concerned all along with the glory of God. In fact, it, it is bookended with one of the most eloquent and evocative declarations of praise in the entire Psalter. O oh Lord, O oh, oh, eternal I am, O oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. H how majestic? How high and lifted up? Well, no one can quite say. For you have set your glory above the heavens. I mean, the shining beauty of your holy majesty is beyond the reach of our wildest imagination. I mean, we are like infants feeding at our mother's breast, uh, unable to speak, and, and, and yet we must sing your praise. We are ordained to sing your praise. I mean, I, I hope you sense the wonder in these words. I mean, this is the kind of thing you say when you look up at the night sky, filled with stars, and you feel overwhelmed. Th this is what you say when you stand on the edge of the ocean and watch the sun set like coals of fire over water. It's what you say when you gaze at the face of a newborn child held in her mother's arms. But before we think more deeply about this great prayer and hymn of praise, I want you to invite you to think about something else, something rather different, human pride. The desire and tendency of every soul to want to set ourselves on high. To, to imagine ourselves as important and significant, even great. I mean, you could call it selfish ambition or vain glory if you prefer. But whatever you call it, think how many tragic struggles in human history have been fueled by this selfish ambition for glory how it led to, to the domination of one human being over the other, 
rich over poor, white over black, man over woman, nation over nation. I mean, think of all the blood that has been shed, families that have been shattered, people who have been oppressed because of human pride and selfish ambition. I mean, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? The brother of Jesus once asked. I mean, is it not ultimately your selfish desires, he said? I mean, you want something. You don't get it. So you quarrel and fight. And what you want, what we all want, is our own way. Our own comfort and pleasure, our own honor and esteem. That's human pride. Now would you think for a moment about the reigning view of the origin of this prideful human species? I mean, what is taught and believed in the institutions of higher learning in our land? That we are nothing but the unintended byproducts of the chance interaction of mindless matter and energy in empty space. That our noblest qualities, therefore, can be reduced to chemical reactions in our bodies. That there is no eternal soul. No goodness, beauty, or truth which transcends our states of consciousness. And certainly no ultimate arbiter of right and wrong, of good and evil. I mean, what a contradiction. What a tragic irony. What we desperately want to be great, to be significant, to be meaningful. And yet, we think we come from nothing. And to nothing we shall return. I mean, to live a meaningful life, uh, to build a meaningful life on such a meaningless foundation, it's like trying to build sandcastles in the air. I mean, why not just admit that life really is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing? But into the futility of this modern and this postmodern contradiction comes the words of this psalm. A psalm artistically formed with a subtle chiasm. Now, now what's a chiasm, someone might ask? Well, it's a poem with a sort of mirror image within itself. I mean, if I, I were to take a piece of paper and fold it in half, and then I were to cut a heart shape into that, and then I were to open that half heart up to you, you'd see a whole heart. That, that's a chiasm. And this psalm begins and ends with the same outer edge. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the second half of the poem in some way mirrors or reflects the first half. I mean, not, not perfectly, but poetically. I mean, the first half speaks of the work of God's fingers, and, and the second half, the work of his hands. The, the first half talks about the heavens above, and the second, the land, and the sky, and the ocean deep. I mean, the first half proclaims the glory of God in the heavens, while the second sings of the glory of God which has been given to humankind. And, and the most important part of a poetic chiasm 
is usually found in the middle, in the center, at the heart of the heart. And in the middle of this poem is a heartfelt cry, a probing existential question with a, with a surprising answer. I mean, when I consider your heavens, the, the work of your fingertips, the moon and stars which you have set in place, I wonder, what is man that you even give him a moment's thought? I mean, have you ever had an experience like that? I have. It was almost midnight in the Matopos Hills of southern Zimbabwe in Africa. And we were looking up into the nighttime sky. And there were no clouds. There, there were no lights from nearby villages. I mean, nothing but stars. And the sky was alive with stars. But it took my breath away. For the first time in my life, I understood why our galaxy is called the Milky Way. I mean, it, it, it was just that, so thick and dense with stars. It was milky. You could hardly separate one light from the other. And I, I was overwhelmed. I was struck with awe and wonder at the greatness of our Creator God. And almost instantaneously, I felt incredibly small. I mean, like a speck of dust floating in infinite space. I mean, the Milky Way galaxy contains billions of stars. I mean, one estimate I read suggested that if you and I could count one star every second, one, two, three, four, it would take us 2,500 years that's 500 years before the birth of Christ to count them all. But, but our Milky Way is just one galaxy, one of, one of hundreds of billions of galaxies in our universe. Some estimate two trillion galaxies. So the number of stars in our universe, I mean, not to mention the planets or asteroids or moons, is quite literally astronomical. I mean, to whom would you compare me? Who is my equal, declares the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each by name? I mean, if our solar system, as grand as it is, could be reduced to the size of a quarter, then the Milky Way galaxy, by comparison, would be about as big as the North American continent. And light, traveling at the speed of 186,000 miles a second, think about that, travels back and forth across our continent 62 times in one second. It travels to the moon in 1.3 seconds. And to the sun, 93 million miles away, in just a little bit over eight minutes. Well, it would take 100,000 years for it to travel from one end of the Milky Way to the other. It would take 23 million years to travel from our planet to the Whirlpool galaxy, and that's just one galaxy among billions, perhaps trillions. Now, imagine 
all these galaxies held in the fingertips of Almighty God like I could hold a quarter. I mean, that's how great, how glorious, how majestic is our God. Well, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingertips, the stars you have set in place, what is man that you would even give him a thought, that you would care about him one whit? And yet, you do. You, you do think about him. You do care for him. In fact, you have done for him what you have done for no other creature on planet Earth. You have made him just a little lower than Elohim. That, that's the Hebrew word in verse 5, the word translated in our New International Version as heavenly beings, with a footnote. And the footnote offers this translation. You have made him a little lower than God. See, that's the way Elohim is usually translated in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it may be what it means in this case, because in this poem, the, the psalmist he is reflecting upon the creation of humankind he, in the likeness and the image of God. You have crowned him with glory and honor, he sings. You, you have made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. I mean, the, the most astonishing thing about the creation story in Genesis is not the great declaration with which it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nor is it the, the claim that this great and glorious God brought everything bursting into reality with the word of his power, let there be light. No, the most astonishing thing, the, the unexpected thing, the truly amazing thing is that God the Father said to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. In the very image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I mean, do you want to understand who you are? Do you want to take an accurate measure of the grandeur of the human species? Then don't look around you and take a measure from the animal world in which you live. And, and don't look within you, searching somehow to find or create a meaning out of thin air. Look up. Behold the starry host in the heavens above and be amazed by the grandeur and the glory of Almighty God. And then be struck down by a sense of your own smallness, your own passing frailty your own intrinsic insignificance. But then keep looking up, keep listening, and hear the word of the Lord. You have been made a little lower than the highest of heavenly beings. 
You have been made in the very image and the likeness of the living God. <laughs> what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Well, it means, according to Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, that we have been given a place of God-reflecting dominion over this planet. I mean, dominion, mind you, not domination. To be made in the image and likeness of God is to be endowed by our Creator with the ability and the responsibility to govern and care for this world He has made. The, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, the mountains and valleys, rivers and streams, the, the skies above, the earth beneath, and everything that moves through the paths of the sea. And and to care for each other. Fellow human beings made in the image of God. And to do all of this in a way that reflects the wisdom, the goodness, the truth of God himself, to rule and to reign in God's name over God's world with God's help in community with one another. In other words, to participate in God's kingdom on earth as God's very created children. See that, that is the glory of humankind. The, the glory of man is to reflect the glory of God in, in the kingdom of God, enjoying his goodness, truth, and beauty in this good world and in the next forever and ever and ever. Amen. But now, the rest of the story. The, the story of how we human beings failed to realize our divinely ordained destiny. How we refused to be glad in the garden of God and satisfied with our place in his creation. How we rebelled against his word and chose to go our own way and ended up east of Eden, building towers of Babel to the sky while everyone continued to do what was right in his own eyes. And the tragic result is that we brought death into God's good world and everything that smells of death in our lives, and we begin to look and act very unlike the good and beautiful God we were created to reflect. <laughs> but that's not the end of, of the story. For our Creator God did, did not just care about us enough to crown us with glory and honor as rulers in His earthly kingdom. And he didn't just care about us until the day that we refused to care about him and his world. You know the good news of the gospel? He is that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world to save the world and the people of the world to actually forgive our sins against his glorious majesty and our sins against each other and our sins against this world. But, but not, not just to forgive our sins, but, but actually to set us free, to set us free to become the sons and daughters of God that we were created to be. I mean, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Not, not just because you spoke the worlds into existence by the word of power. And not just because you created the starry host and you call each one by name. But, but also because in your mercy and grace you made humankind in your image. I mean, you, you crowned us with glory and honor and gave us an incredible reason for existence to share your life and to reflect your goodness in the world you made. And when we failed, and oh, Lord, we have failed. You did not abandon us to destruction and to eternal death to the consequences of our mismanagement of this world and our mistreatment of each other. No, you sent your son, the son who shares your very being, and he was made like us, a little lower than the heavenly beings. I mean, he actually humbled himself to life in a baby's body and death on a criminal's cross. He became what we are so that we could become like him. And now you have raised him to your right hand and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And, and you will put all things under his feet as the resurrected Messiah and Son of Man. You have now given him as head to the church by your spirit. You have united us with him as his body. And now, now we can become what we were created to be. Partners with you, ruling and reigning in your world. I mean, the Son of God, became like us through the incarnation, death, and resurrection so that we could become like him, united to him by the Holy Spirit, and now crowned with honor and glory as the righteous image bearers that we were created to be. So, so who are you? Who are you? Upon what are you depending for your meaning and purpose in life? I mean, do you, do you actually believe that you are a mere byproduct of the chance interaction of molecules? Because if you do, then hear not just the word of the Lord, but, but hear the words of Bertrand Russell, a brilliant and tragic atheist from a previous generation who said, the life of man is a long march through the night, tortured by weariness and pain, toward a goal that few can hope to reach and where none may tarry long. One by one as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Brief and powerless is man's life, on him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. Man is condemned today to lose his dearest and tomorrow pass through the gates of darkness. 
cheery fellow, don't you think? <laughs> but he's right. I mean, if you and I are no more than the mindless result of time, energy, and chance, th then how can there be ultimate meaning in life? But if you and I are made in the very image and likeness of the living God, if we are loved by the awesome and omnipotent Lord of the universe, if we are sons and daughters of the eternal Father, saved by the incarnate Son, then we are supremely and eternally significant, not by our own goodness or power or intellect, but by the love and grace of our triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, hallowed be His name. In an essay entitled The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our earthly desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. But when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. But, but as C.S. Lewis certainly knew, we are invited to much, much more than a mere holiday at sea. I mean, we are invited into a grand and glorious life of meaning and purpose in communion with the living God. We are invited to be His very sons and daughters and to represent the coming of His kingdom in this world. We're invited to engage in a cosmic battle with enemies of goodness and truth, clothed in the armor of God, to, to rescue lost and dying children with the good news of the gospel, to set prisoners free, to open the eyes of the blind, to do the work of God in Jesus' name. We are invited to proclaim the good news of redemption from the power of sin and reconciliation to the person of God and restoration to his entire fallen creation. And we're, we're given the unparalleled privilege of turning everything we do into a mirror which reflects the glory of God until the day his kingdom comes and his will is done on this earth as it is in heaven. And, and may I say, there is nothing higher, nothing greater, nothing more glorious for humankind. I mean, the glory of humankind is to reflect the glory of God in the kingdom of God on this earth, earth and in the new heaven and the new earth to come and in both those places to enjoy him and his good creation forever and ever and ever. And oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh, Father.